Today I want to talk more about chiefs. This, of course, is of critical importance to understanding Diko's life story because she was the first wife of Chief Konaka. And I want to talk today about Manbilla chiefs, in particular the situation in the middle of the 20th century, just at the period when, um, both before and after the period when Konaka died. I'll end today with a more detailed account of the quarrel which I summarised in my initial lecture. And then we can use yesterday's and today's lecture next week to help understand the pattern of religious change through the 20th century. So, let me start with a summary of the history of the Chief Sosomi and Mambilla Chiefship in general. Mambilla on the Tikar Plain, the Cameroonian Mambilla, have come down from the heights of the Mambilla Plateau, which is now in Nigeria, and they seem to have come down during the 19th century. Their neighbours on the Tikar Plain are, perhaps unsurprisingly, the Tikar, from whom some of the institutions of the chief have been borrowed. And also the Kwanja, who descended at about the same time from the Adamawa Plateau. I, should no I note that Kwanja speak a Mambiloid language, and it's quite closely related to Mambilla. Like Mambilla, the Kwanja are, in cultural terms, transitional, living between the north and the south, understanding those divisions both in cultural and ecological terms. The history of the village of Somi throughout the 20th century oscillates between the north and the south. To the north is the Full Bay Lamidate of Banyo, founded in the second half of the 19th century as part of the jihad launched in Sokotu by Usumanu Danfodio in 1809. The date for the foundation of Banyo as a Lamidate is contentious. There's been a big controversy between Jean Hiro and Eldridge Mohamedou. But it's certainly part of the second, um, certainly in the second half of the 19th century. It was part of Adama's extension of the Sokoto Jihad into what subsequently became known as Adamawa. To the south, so much for the north. To the south is Fumban, and beyond it the coast. Also to the south and west is the region known as the Cameroon Grassfields where the Germans had bases in Bermenda, in Bali. A few years before Diko was born, they established a road connecting Bali and Banyo. This road passed through Somi, and a rest house was established at the foot of the escarpment on the other side of the river from its current location. And there's actually um, a German map published in 1916, by coincidence the year that the Germans were kicked out of um, Cameroon, um, which is, includes the name Somi for the first, probably the first time. Um, and it's quite remarkable, the detail of that map, considering how little time the Germans spent in 
this part of Cameroon. The village of Somme is known to have had four locations, three of these in the 20th century. The earliest known site is the very top of the escarpment of the Mambilla Plateau, more or less exactly where the Cameroon-Nigerian border now lies. We've got no clear evidence when this was left, when this was abandoned. Um, granted the fact that you can still see tiny little house emplacements, it's probably about 200 or so years ago. But um, the archaeology of this area is only just beginning. By the beginning of the 20th century, the village had moved some 15 kilometres from there and was considerably lower down, on a hilltop on the edge of the Tikar Plain. This would have provided some protection from full bay cavalry coming from the north, making slave raids in the area. Once... Oh, sorry. I thought I had killed that. Um, I think that will shut it up. Um, once they were persuaded that the German administration had stopped the raids, they moved. And they moved down onto the plain around the time of the First World War. And so about the time that the Germans lost Cameroon. And they moved to the site which is now known as the Old Village, um, where they remained until 1964. In late 1964, they moved to the current site. The trend of these moves was to be closer to the fertile soils of the Tikar Plain, where, unlike on the Mambula Plateau, oil palms grow, since it's about 500 metres lower. But these, these moves only took place as they became safe from raiding. The, um, the first move in the 20th century was their decision that it was safe enough to move closer to water and to their fields. The second move, however, was at the instigation of the national government, since by moving from what's now called the old village to the current site, they have crossed to the Bankim side of the river Marfalu, where they could be reached by road throughout the year, thus making it possible to have a state dispensary so it could be resupplied by road without the state having to run to the expense of building a bridge. There were, of course, other benefits to having permanent road connections to the rest of the country, both for the village and the administration. So the coffee, which was just coming into full production in 1964, uh, could be trucked out. After the First World War, the area was governed as a mandate by the French authorities, and colonial officers came to the Tikar Plain on tour on a regular basis, but only relatively rarely coming to um, Somme. In the interwar period, tax began to be levied, the first missions, the first schools arrived, and the slave raids were stopped, although not all the slaving, as I will shortly discuss. Mambella chiefship is borrowed to no small extent from that of the Tikar. Even the word for chief, Ngbe, is a Tikar loan. But unlike the Tikar, and unlike the kingdoms of the grass fields, there's no executive. The chief does not, did not have either a masquerading society like in Guarong, 
or any other means to enforce his decisions on dissenters. That said, an important part of his political role is dispute resolution. But the decision made by the chief and his senior advisers are enforced by the weight of public opinion, although now this is bolstered by, by the mechanisms of the state. In Konaka's day, and before, as today, disgruntled or disaffected people had a choice of whether to um, accept a decision or leave the village. What was impossible, in a practical sense, was to refuse a decision to deny the chief's authority and to remain living in the village. People could, however, vote with their feet. There are some villages now in the, on the Tikar Plain which consist of a chief and, more or less, his immediate family and no one else. Actually, the, the hamlet, which was founded as the, the rest camp on the, uh, on the German road, which is mm, a mile and a half from Somme, is a case in point. Nowadays, hearings in the, chief court, in the chief's court are, if at all important, preliminaries to hearings in the national legal system. But this runs the risk of making the chief sound far less important than he actually is, let alone was. The chief successfully resolves many smaller disputes locally, but not acting alone. He serves as a primus inter pares, perhaps more like the head of an academic department rather than the vice-chancellor of a university. He does have power, but perhaps less power than he sometimes seems to have. He supervises and assists in many interactions between the state and the population of the village, such as the collection of, the, of tax on one case, but also in arranging for the vaccination of children. He mediates the village to the state and the state to the village. This is not an easy job, but one that in the hands of an adept politician can give a, give a chief influence far beyond the village. The last chief, Degas Francois, who died in um, April 2002, ended up serving as the mayor of the Tikar town of Bankim, which is the Sioux Prefecture. Um, and he served there for about five years, I think. Um, and this gave him, gave him no small influence on the Tikar plain. Um, now I've got a list of the chiefs, the significant, which I'll skip. The significant thing is that Konaka served as chief from approximately 1929 till the end of 1949. The Europeans who occasionally travelled the road to Banyo marked the beginnings of colonial rule, which although nominally starting in the late 19th century, really only began to impact the Mambilla villages after the Germans had been replaced by French administration, um, were serving under League of, uh, League of Nations mandate following the First World War. Such niceties, of course, made no difference on the ground, and the French are remembered for two things. First, the corvée labour system, which took many people from the village to build roads, such as the motor road from Fumban to Banyo, which was made in the early, uh, yeah, the early 1950s, 
and this passes about 70 kilometers from Somme. And second, the French are remembered for stopping the slave trade north to Banyo and beyond. Many older Mambilla share the sentiments of Jean-Claude Muller's de-informants some 500 kilometers away, and he has a lovely article entitled Merci à vous les Blancs de nous avoir libérés. The delicate balance of the relationship between the colonial and post-colonial national authorities and the pre-colonial regional ruler, the Lamedo of Banyo, forms the political environment within which the chief of Somi has to operate. On the one hand, Banyo is close and continues to take an immediate interest in the chiefs within its old purview. Until recent years, this had consequences. Additional taxes were paid by those chiefs and their populations to Banyo, and that is now being challenged by some cases. It also had the effect of putting great pressure on chiefs to become Muslim. This occurred in the case of Moreau Michel, the, um, who became chief in 1954. And as you can tell from his name, he has a Christian name. Um, that was the name which is on his identity card, but he subsequently converted to Islam. Dega Francois also became Muslim, but he had actually converted before he became chief when he was working in the extreme north province. So the influence of Banyo is there and important. On the other hand, the national authorities have the most power and resources. Only they can arrange for roads to be made, schools to be built. It is to the local representatives of the government, the district officer and his staff, that tax must be made, must be paid. Sorry, The system of justice that prevails beyond the chief's court is the national one. Yet the Lamido is far, far from being without influence. The sous-prefet within whose jurisdiction Somi falls reports to the prefet who is based in Banyo. The government recognises the Lamado as a traditional chief of the first degree. By contrast, the chief of Somi is a third degree chief. Such rulers, the first degree chiefs, retain no small amount of influence. They are often major players in contemporary politics. And this was actually portrayed in a film about another um, Adamawa Lamido senior to that of Banyo, the Lamado of Ngandere, in a film called The Sultan's Burden, which nicely illustrates the political minefield that these large chiefs have to operate in these days. When Konaka became chief in the late 1920s, tribute was being given to Banyo on an annual basis, mainly in kind, palm oil, were also in the form of slaves some from outlying hamlets, and this is a continuing source of resentment for people in those hamlets. Prior to the Second World War, the French administrators governed through the existing power hierarchy, in effect using the Lamado of Banyo as their agent. 
the French officers turned a blind eye to the tribute giving, which they surely knew about. And that certainty is kind of increased by a few cases which have left a trace in the colonial archives. One such had an impact on something. It concerns Baria Dwa, the founding chief of Nasaro village, some 10 kilometers from Somi. Nasaro was another rest camp on the German road to Banyo, and hence its name, Nasaro, which is the day for European white man. Barrier Dois was a Tikar warrant chief, installed by the French to administer the villages on the western edge of the Tikar plain. This gave him jurisdiction over a collection of villages, some Tikar, some Mambilla. The oral history that I have collected from Deco and others is consistent with the archival record, both the national archives and the regional archives. The story is a classic one of an appointee starting well, then falling out of favour. According to the archival reports, Barrier Dois was, quote, installed by us to remove Tikar Kwanja and Mambilla from the tutelage of Banyo, who was pressuring them too much. Another report says that the Tikar were paying 100 prisoners a year to Banyo. This is a classic case of slaving without raiding. The threat of force, the possibility of raiding, meant that a subjugated population paid tribute in the form of palm oil and prisoners sent to Banyo as slaves. I note that human tribute was collected from the outlying hamlets far more than from the village centre a source of continuing resentment by the outlying population. And I've um, published elsewhere a history from the head of one of those hamlets where he is complaining of the enslavement of his people, his hamlet, by the people of Somi, just as the people of Somi complain about the, uh, um, their enslavement by Banyo. And it's a kind of interesting sort of fractal effect there. At every, every resolution, every, someone is complaining about someone else. So, in effect, the village chiefs treated the hamlets under their control in the same way that Banya was treating them. In that sense, the way that Barry Edouard began to treat the villages under his control was, in retrospect, unsurprising. What happened? It began well, as these relationships do. In May 1922, he was given a gun and a red robe um, by the French colonial officer in return for his excellent service. By January 1925, the situation had changed. The Banyo archives record the following. Um, 17th of January 1925, exactions ordered by Barry Edouard from the inhabitants of Somme in the course of taxing. Henceforth, taxation must be administered directly from the post. Meanwhile, Barry Edouard retains his authority over the southern region. And it continues, Since Jan 23, the Tikar have thrown off the Fulbe mantle and with unanimous consent invested Barry Edouard. After his severe dressing down for his treatment of the people of Somme, one can hope he will be good. But he wasn't. He continued to exact more from the Mambilla villages than he was supposed to be, um, than, than he was supposed to be collecting for tax, and by the end of the 1920s, he was deposed by the French authorities. 
He's now remembered in the village as being an agent of Banyo, collecting slaves for them. And again, in classic fashion, constructing an account of a monster, when people in Somi talk about him, they say that he buried slaves alive in the walls of his palace, the, 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 his palace that he built in Nazaro village. So that's one instance from the archives um, of the, the trouble with Banyo um, enslaving. After the Second World War, various populations on the Tikar Plain grew more and more resentful of the domination by Banyo Forbe of those non-Forbe to the south, many of whom were becoming Christian. Hence, Ndi's plan, which I mentioned yesterday, thwarted by his untimely death in 1953 to try and get the villages of the Tikar Plain attached to Fumban, not Banyu. Now, it's interesting to note that the rulers of Fumban have been Muslim themselves since early in the 20th century. This was Sultan and Joya's rebuff to the Germans. But from the point of view of the Mambilla, the Bamun people of Fumban had never enslaved them, unlike the Fulbay to the north. The issue was about hegemony, not about religion. In another celebrated, locally celebrated incident after the Second World War, representatives of the Kwanja, remember the neighbours of the Mambilla, publicly asked a visiting French administrator to intercede on their behalf to stop the agents of the Lamado of Banyo exacting um, tax and tribute. This was done at a meeting in Mayodali Mine, in front of the Lamado himself um, and the local Catholic priest, uh, Jean Bocnet. Um, at almost the same time, a missionary's touring notes from August 1955 mentions the chief of Somi saying that the raids had stopped but children were still being taken by forebears slaves. And the same report notes that the chief of the neighbouring Mambilla village, Sonkolong, was under pressure from Banyo to cease support for the Catholic school there because the Catholic mission was impeding the collection of slaves. There's also um, a history of the Norwegian Protestant missionaries in Adamawa, which um, over a far wider area documents many such incidents. These events serve to demonstrate, serve to establish the political environment within which Konaka and Diko as his first wife had to operate. By the time of Konaka's death at the end of a long reign, the village had a school and at least in the dry season when the rivers were fordable was accessible by car or lorry. Some vaccinations had begun against childhood diseases. Konaka managed the transition from relatively ungoverned frontier village to one that was integrated into the colonial state, soon to become a nation state. No subsequent changes, including the transition to independence in 1960, were as great as those that occurred in his time. Now, in the conversations with Zondwe, Diko takes all of this for granted. And I suspect that this is because of the success that she and her husband had in their, well, I suppose, politicking 
In retrospect, especially at this remove, the delicate compromises needed in order to manage both Christianity and traditional religious practice appear trivial, as do the balances between the maintenance of local authority and dealing with Banyu and the local administration. These issues, which must have preoccupied Ponaka and Diko at the time, are now off the agenda. And despite my attempts to elicit comment, they are no longer salient enough to be worthy of comment. History is made, and history fades with fashion and the tides of memory. The least we can do is to examine the tide waves and learn something about what is deemed memorable. This resembles, to some extent, um, Jan Van Sina's use of oral history in reconstructing the history of Central African ideologies. Now, in the first lecture, I gave a summary of a quarrel between Diko and Konaka, her husband. I want to explore it in a, in a little bit more detail, but first of all, I need to say some things about the position of the first wife of the chief, since that was Diko's role. In a polygonous household, the first wife has an important role. She commands her co-wives, she organises their labour. It is she, rather than her husband, who is supposed to manage the cycle of sexual access to their husband. In short, a first wife can make the lives of her co-wives miserable and she can benefit considerably from their labour. This is the classic problem of polygamous households. It can be the, a fertile breeding ground for jealousy and witchcraft accusations. That said, most of the relatively infrequent polygamous marriages in Somi, at least today, are stable, and they've managed to find a modus vivendi. But all the same issues apply to the first wife of the chief, and all the more so since he has more wives than most men. Um, where polygamous marriages do occur, they rarely have more than three wives. Um, the, chi the 20th century chiefs, um, none have had less than four, um, and the maximum I've recorded is eight. So again, that's small by comparison to some of the grassfield chiefs. So, I now want to consider the economic, political and ritual role of the chief's first wife. She had an important economic role, and indeed the quarrel is really about this. As I've already said, just said, the first wife organises the labour of her co-wives and their children. But this organisation has wider implications wider implications when she is the first wife of the chief, since as well as their own individual fields, there are communal fields, worked on by the village population on behalf of the chief. It's one of the kind of signs of fealty, I suppose, that you go and work on during the, the, the village work parties. First planting, first harvesting took place in these communal fields with some ritual accompaniment that I will discuss next week. So, Diko was then doing far more, much more than just organising the labour of her co-wives. She was on some occasions setting in motion the agricultural cycle of the entire village. 
With this went more responsibility. The chief's wives had to cook for themselves, their children, but also had to manage entertainment for any visitors who came to the village. And they had to make beer for the many rituals that the chief undertook, almost all of which require beer to be drunk or poured or sprayed. I mean, in many ways you can describe Manbilla as a heavy beer society. Um, since beer takes almost a week to be ready, some forward planning and coordination is required, especially if a ritual is to be performed on a specific day of the traditional 10-day week. Many rites are only performed on Bab, the Mambilla Holy Day, or um, in Pigeon English it's called Country Sunday. For beer to be ready on a given Bab, the first wife must ensure that the grain is malted, then ground and fried and steeped, and so on, all in advance according to the six days it takes to make um, maize or sorghum beer. All of this means that she has to manage the labour of herself and her co-wives far more than an ordinary co-wife. The first wife has a ritual role and also a political one. She has an honorific title, Fon Dwe. Um, several of the women's titles start with the prefix Fon. Um, Dwe means big. One of the main, the most important um, schwa masquerades is called schwa due. Um, as well as her honorific title, she has the right to carry a buffalo tail fly whisk. She's not alone in this. There are six other women with titles and the rights to carry fly whisks. One of those six is the second wife of the chief. The others are the gungbe, the also called uh, marinjo in for full day. Um, they are led by the senior sister of the chief and she, rather than the first wife, is seen as the representative of the women of the village. The other Gungbe are also sisters of the chief plus representatives from two outlying hamlets, um, usually wives of the hamlet headmen. This means that the political role of the chief's first wife is not very great, but she is a prominent figure in the village and her actions will be noted. And again, this has implications for the adoption of Christianity, which I'll discuss next week, particularly in the light of her ritual role. For as well as being responsible for providing the beer required for many rituals, the first wife has an important role to play in some of them. And unlike the Gungbe, she can deputise for the chief in some circumstances. For example, there are some game animals who are the exclusive preserve of the chief, the so-called uh, mbe animals. These are things such as the python, buffalo, um, and leopard. Um, when one is caught, it must be taken to the chief who has to make the first cut of its skin. It can then be skinned and will usually be distributed, giving some parts back to the hunter, the rest going to the chief, who then gives some to his wives, some to his siblings. The significant thing here is that 
in the absence of the chief, if, for example, he goes to Banyo to um, consult the Lamado or the prefet, then his first wife can act in his stead and make the first cut of an embe animal. And as a consequence of this, it means that when the chief leaves the village, his first wife does not accompany him. So when the chief was acting as the mayor of Bankim, he was basically spending the week in Bankim, coming back at weekends. When he went to Bankim, he was accompanied by a, well, a rotation of his other wives, but never the first wife. One or other of the chief and the first wife is in the village all the time. Another similar thing that, he, um, that she can do in his stead is if you find a metallic object. Finding metal is a good thing, but before, if you're going to keep it, then it needs to be blessed by the chief to mark the transfer of, of ownership. Um, and she can do this in his stead. So, having given this background, I now want to return to Deco's quarrel with Konaka. The quarrel revolved around the organisation of the wives' work, the details of which is usually organised by the first wife. Konaka was concerned with the Mbesa ritual, in which Beer is poured by a sister's son on the grave of their mother's brother. The beer is then spurted or sprayed over spears, which are held over the grave before a hunt. The success of this hunt is seen as a measure of the efficacy or success of the ritual. This he wanted to do on the forthcoming Bam, the holy day of the traditional week. Um, and I'm going to, I can just quickly show you a couple of photographs of the only one that I've ever actually witnessed. Um, I'll show you three of them. So sort of, you can see all the spears being pointed. The man with the brown hat is the man organising the ritual. Um, you can see him a bit better in this one. And then... Finally, here's the sister's son. These are the sisters of, of, the, of the man um, who organised it. And so this, this ritual is being done for their father. And you can actually see just about the, the, the sister's son spurting, spraying the beer over them. Right. So, let me now go through, give you a kind of more detailed account of Deco's story of the quarrel she had. Chief Konaka thought they should go and thresh some sorghum to make beer. Deco said that they'd do it at the end of the day. They went off to gather thatching grass for her house, which had already had its old thatch stripped off. This means, incidentally, that the time of year was um, dry season um, and sorghum harvest is about now. Having gathered the thatching grass, 
they collected some, some like often gets called spinach, um, some green leaves from the field, else there would have been none for the evening meal. And tired out, they went back to the palace. The chief saw the green leaf in their baskets, and I guess because the sorghum would be so heavy, you can actually see by watching someone with a, um, carrying a basket whether they're carrying grain in it or not. He saw the green leaf in the top of their baskets and realised, inferred, that they hadn't gathered any sorghum. As the wives entered the palace, he struck their baskets with his hippo tail fly whisk, his badge of office, remember. Now, in the same section of the tape, Deco said that when wives were beaten, it was in private. So perhaps this was a public allusion to the possibility of a private beating. But remember my comments in last week's lecture that threats of beating are far, far more common than actual instances. Here we immediately arrive at an interpretive dilemma. Dico does not refer to her inner states, to her intentions. Even if she did, I would hesitate about taking them uncritically, since she herself was talking at such a chronological remove. This is one of the dilemmas about all autobiography and recollection, which, um, of course, biography can sometimes improve on. Um, and it's a dilemma which she herself avoids simply by recounting a sequence of events. She leaves speculation of, of intentions to us, her audience. So, she says, bam, wham, the fly whisk hits her basket. He hit her basket. He hit the basket of her two co-wives behind her. She let the basket drop, snatched up her baby and fled the village. Fearful of a beating, perhaps, insulted by his lack of trust in her management of the household labour, perhaps, seeking to protect the other wives from the repercussions of her actions. It was her decision not to carry on and gather the sorghum. Possibly all of these. And little later, Sondre suggested that it was because she was fearful of another beating. But she just ignored him and went on with her story. So, <coughs> excuse me. So she fled out of the village, down the path to the river, where she hid in the bush near the rocky pool where they make palm oil emulsion. Her co-wives went and rested. It was her mother-in-law, Ban, who made them notice that she hadn't come back. And in doing this, she used her title, Fondue, to refer to her. Bang said that if Fondue, Dico, didn't come back home, she too would go and sleep in the bush. By saying that she herself would go and look for her, Bang got the co-wives to go, to go out with her to look for Dico. 
because the, the co-wives couldn't let their mother-in-law look alone. They came out calling her name. Diko, Diko, Dikoe. That's what, um, that's where the, the, the sound recording which I put on the website, which I played in the, the first lecture, where that comes from. Diko was quiet and the baby slept quietly so no one saw or heard her. She hid down in the bush. The, deco, the, 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 sorry, the searchers called out that if she didn't come out, they wouldn't go back to the village, that they too would sleep in the bush. And this changed her mind, I suppose. So she went back quietly across the river and found her in-laws sheltering under a tree where they'd gathered, having failed to find her. Diko had made her point. She asked them that if they'd seen the beating, why hadn't they intervened? Now, Conacher's line was that by going against his wishes, by not gathering the sorghum, she had rebelled. After that, his mother asked him what had happened. He started to complain that he had asked Diko to go for sorghum for the ritual, but after getting the fat, she had got the spinach leaf and then just rested. But Diko was tired, and her co-wives wouldn't or perhaps couldn't be expected to, um, to, to leave without her. And then he complained at her he complained at her disobeying him in his position. And that really is the end of the story as she originally told it. His mother told him off for beating his wives over small things. If they were tired, what could he do about it? Was he going to do women's work? No. So he should let them get on with it. What happened next? The next morning, the wives cooked porridge, then went and got the sorghum. The conversation moved on to the labour involved with sorghum cultivation, without pursuing any of the long-term consequences. In December 2002, I checked with Deco about this argument. When I asked explicitly on the basis of what I already knew from her storytelling with Sandway, she told me that afterwards Diko was told off for overreacting by Bang, her, his mother, her Marku. This illustrates the importance of affinity, the other side of avoidance and respect. The very in-laws one avoids may mediate conflict between spouses, even when one of them is chief. Incidentally, the reciprocal of the word marku is the word for wife. So a senior woman can have wives, her son's, her son's wives. Now, um, as I said, this I had to elicit. I had, it had to be spelt out to me by Deco and um, one, of her, one of her daughters that... Affinity and, and kinship 
is more important than the institution of chief. This had to be said to me, it didn't need saying to Sondre. Everyone there, everyone party to the original conversation, knew that enough had been said, so it seemed uh, appropriate to them that the conversation should move on to other topics. Only I felt the need to elaborate and ask questions about the longer-term consequences. In a strange way, this is to exemplify Basil Bernstein's distinction between restricted and elaborated codes. Not as much as an educational style, but more as a conversational style. Of course, the two are very closely related. When talking to family members, or at least fellow villagers, rather than an anthropologist, informants can and do use a restricted code which can be opaque to someone listening to the tape recording or overhearing a conversation. What I hope I can do is to use some of the very features of the restricted code to illuminate how these Mambilla actors understand the way their society works. This is to use the very question of what gets taken, taken for granted um, as so commonplace that it does not need stating as a method for doing sociology. So indeed, what is assumed as a common conversational resource becomes a, a, a source for anthropological insight, which is why the ethnography of speaking is so important for empirically responsible anthropology. Now, as I said in lecture one, the importance of that story for me is the relative balance between kinship and chiefship. Um, also, the way that um, what should I say? The way that implicit understandings can be teased out, particularly over the long term, by it being able to go back and have further conversations. I've been able to, um, I hope, tease out some of the features of that restricted code in an empirically responsible fashion. Next week, I'm going to talk about religion and religious change. That's going to take, that starts with the role of the chief in the traditional religious system. The way in which the role of the chief has changed from perhaps a more central position to a more peripheral one. And that itself is parallel to the relationship between the very weak chiefs that Ray, Farnham Rayfish documented on the Nigerian side of the border and the more politically centralised chiefs that you find in Mambilla villages in Cameroon, um, as I've discussed today. Um, since I've come to a stopping point, I think I'm going to stop there and then carry on with religion next week. Because otherwise I start a little bit of religion and then have to stop. So we'll call that a day. Thank you very much.